Oh, Father, we thank you for gathering us, your people, here together this day to celebrate and proclaim Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We thank you that we have joined the confession of the saints of old and those who are yet to be born who will come into the kingdom as your word is preached and you continue to draw to yourself the lost unto salvation. Lord, we pray that you would gather a number so great that it would magnify, Lord, the praises that we can offer as we join with them in worship and praise one day in glory. In the meantime, Father, as we are here serving you in smaller places, in nooks and crannies, in the corners of the earth, wherever you call us, in our jobs, our calling as parents and friends and family and so forth, we pray that you would equip us, strengthen us, and and quicken us with with faith to be faithful unto your word as we are diligent to magnify the greatness of our God always looking forward to the day of the redemption of all things. Now, as we turn to your scriptures and we see, Lord, that everything is established according to your sovereign plan and will, and that you have a purpose even in the sin of man and the fall, Lord Jesus, to reveal yourself in mercy and in judgment, may it encourage us to stand strong in a day of darkness that we might shine brightly as light to the lost. I pray that you would equip us and strengthen us to interact in this world, Lord, with the absolute confidence that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, that God is our Father and has ransomed and adopted us through the work of His Son, and the Holy Spirit has and will continue to apply these truths to our heart that we may bear fruit for Him and bring glory to His name by advancing the cause of the great gospel of our Lord and Savior. We pray that you would answer these prayers and that you would open our ears to hear your word, all to the praise and credit of Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen. Well, praise the Lord. What a gracious gift and opportunity it is for us this morning to worship the Lord together and to open up his holy scriptures and so doing as well as lift up these songs of worship unto him. Turn with me, if you would, in the pages of your Bible to Genesis 3. And let us continue this morning discovering the architecture of reality from the earliest account of man's history, where God himself is speaking in the text today, the context of our passage today, in judgment as a consequence for the fall, as a consequence for sin. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glory of God revealed in his prophetic word of judgment and of salvation. Um, E, if you want to bring up those lights back there, that'd be great. Uh, This morning, the aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the glory of God revealed in His prophetic word of judgment and salvation. Primarily this morning, we will cover judgment realities that are given to us in the proclamation and the pronouncement of the Lord in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. This is the word of God to three parties First of all, the serpent, secondly, the woman, and thirdly, the man that is Adam and Eve in following the fallout of sin. Would you stand with me with your Bible open this morning and let us again hear God's holy word as is proclaimed to us from the pages of the first book in the Bible. Again, this is Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Listen as God's holy word is proclaimed in your hearing today. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Judgment realities. Have you heard them this morning in the proclamation of the word? Truths about the nature of man and the conditions of the world and man's relationship with the world and with God as a consequence of the fall, judgment realities. I hope you've also heard hope. There is prophetic hope on the horizon in this proclamation, in these pronouncements of consequences, punishment, and judgment for sin. Thus we see God's glory revealed in His prophetic word of judgment and salvation from the earliest pages of the Holy Scriptures. Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we find the judgments of God levied upon man and upon the serpent as a consequence of the fall of mankind into sin. Now, these judgments provide a precise accounting of the nature of man and his relationship to the world. All of these principles, all of these judgment realities still shape and characterize as much today as they did then the relationship of man to his world, the nature and condition of mankind as a consequence of sin. This is testified to us in our experience as well as the Word, and only the blind, only the spiritually stupefied, only those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are willfully unable and because of their spiritual condition cannot see that this is the case. It is patently obvious It is so obvious only a fool would deny that the conditions laid out as a consequence for sin plague the experience of man, plague us even today. The Word of God is strikingly relevant, it is absolutely authoritative, and the evidence of all of this is absolutely cumulative, and the case is so strong, again, only a fool would deny, and this is obvious today, and if anything, we have more reason to see it evident. It is evidently true, inasmuch as so many years have passed since this moment of proclamation, and each one of those centuries, each one of those eras has been marked by the very conditions that we read of this morning. The case for the existence of God, based upon the truth of His judgments, as well as His hope for salvation, revealed and evident through time, has never been stronger than it is right here, right now, in 2018 A.D., Though so many, nevertheless, so many in our day scoff at the origin account unfolding in Genesis. But listen, very important phrase. 
they can do nothing. The unbeliever, those who scoff at the word, the mockers, the scoffers, they can do nothing but illustrate its absolute prophetic accuracy even in their unbelief. The mockers and the scoffers can do nothing but illustrate the absolute prophetic accuracy of the Word of God even in their incredulity, even in their unbelief. Genesis 3 continues to lay out for us the architecture of reality, all the while explaining in detail why things are the way we experience them at every point in human history since the fall. The consequences of sin not only alter the nature and destiny of man, but our text today also reveals how the natural world is affected by man's sin. Would you turn with me to Romans 8? Yes, not just man himself in his state of mind, his condition and his relationship to others, to God and to the world is affected, but even nature itself, creation itself, has been affected by the fall. That is to say, everything is out of joint and awaits the day of divine intervention to restore what has been the state of things since these early moments in time. Everything is out of joint and cries out for repair, and that repair is forthcoming and will be fully manifest in time. And uh, the book of Romans testifies to this fact in chapter 8. Let us read, or listen as, uh, we re- as I read for you verses 19 and following. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." This is the cry from the deepest aspects of nature itself and from the awakened soul of the believer who knows that he is out of joint and can only be repaired and put back together. He knows he was dead in his trespasses and sins and has only been made alive by a sovereign work of the one who had the power to create this world in the first place, has the power to recreate his soul in the image of Christ his Lord. These are the things that man, as he he receives the gospel and nature itself, cry out for a restoration, a redemption, a putting back together of that which was broken. Let us consider this morning and the three-part decree of judgment following the fall, the effects that we read of man's sin from Genesis. And let us also note not only how they were present in the experience of Adam and Eve then, but they're equally evident today. Here's a heading for you. Basic post-fall realities. Truths about the nature of man, his relationship to the world as a result of the fall. And these are established by the decree of God. Basic post-fall realities established by the decree of God. The entirety of our text this morning is the word-for-word decree of God. His pronouncement of judgment upon the fall of man into sin. 
Under this heading, we'll have three main points this morning. Post-fall realities pronounced on the serpent, on the devil, on Satan, as represented in the serpent. Secondly, post-fall realities pronounced on the woman, namely Eve. And thirdly, post-fall realities established by the decree of God pronounced upon Adam. That's the order of our text today. God decrees His judgment, His consequences for sin to the serpent and to the woman and to Adam. Reading again verses 14 and 15. First, we have this message delivered to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These are basic post-fall realities established by the decree of God that come in the form of judgment pronounced first and foremost, or firstly, upon the serpent, Satan himself. First of all, we see a humiliating subjugation of wickedness, or the wicked, that is proclaimed as a consequence of the rebellion of Satan, uh, taking, this, uh, taking the liberty to exalt himself uh, above the Lord and to disregard his law, disregard his created order, disregard the terms and conditions of God's covenant, and seek to entrap man and successfully did so in sin, delivering this temptation, now he must reap the consequences for his transgression. And they come in the form of a humiliating subjugation. He will be, his dignity and standing will be stripped of its once great, prominent, honorable status, and it will be reduced to something that is lowly, debased, wicked, and obviously so, and it's pictured in what happened to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. We talked about this last week, how in creation, oftentimes God has revelation of Himself. Uh, young people, the focus of our study in chapter 2 of your study, uh, of our Sunday morning uh, studies, uh, focuses, has focused in part on revelation. What are the two kinds of revelation? Special and general. What do we call it when God shows us something of Himself in creation? Which kind of revelation is that? That's right, that is general revelation. Now a snake slithering through the grass. Has anyone seen a snake? What, what's the kind of snake that we see most commonly around here? Garter snake. And they're usually about this long, right? And they slither in the grass. Sometimes they're very hard to see. Why? Because the grass is green and the snake has these green colors. Sometimes they can sneak up to you. And, and, and usually, if you're like me, when you notice a snake, it's a little startling, especially if you know that snake is poisonous. What happens if a poisonous snake bites you? Get sick or die. So the, these are pictures in creation, in general revelation of evil. Evil is uh, sneaky. Oftentimes you don't see it until it's right in front of you. Evil, wickedness, uh, transgressing God's law is poisonous. When you are too close to it and when you interact with it, if it makes a connection with you and bites you, you will die. The wages of sin is death as we study. 
But there is a third picture, we studied this last week briefly, of subjugation. The fact that a snake has no legs and it crawls on its belly and eats dust as it were is a picture of the ultimate subjugation of evil, the fact that God is in charge of Satan. And Satan is always under his feet. And God expressed this. God demonstrated his authority over Satan ultimately on the cross where Satan was crushed under the foot of Jesus Christ. So this is a consequence. It's a post-fall reality. It's a, it's a judgment upon Satan himself. And the picture of a snake, even in creation, reminds us of this theme. Now, this theme of the subjugation of evil, God declaring victory over the wicked, God crushing and humiliating the wicked, making a spectacle out of him, and thus showing forth his judgments and humiliating, stripping uh, the pride of man, uh, the pride of Satan and uh, men who align themselves with Satan, this theme constantly plays out through history. There is an inevitable, that means you can't escape it, fateful end of the self-exalted. Anyone who aligns themselves with the serpent to exalt themselves above the glory and the knowledge of God will be humiliated. This, uh, this is evident even in a modern figure of speech or aphorism. Who's heard of the phrase, the bigger they are, the harder they fall? That is not a scriptural phrase per se. In other words, those words don't appear in that order in Scripture, but it certainly is a scriptural concept. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. I wonder if anyone remembers some of these examples from Scripture. These are a few of my favorites. My favorite uh, examples of humiliation of those who allied themselves with Satan. Again, young people, does anyone remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when when he exalted himself as a god? Uh, Close, close. Anyone else? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he exalted himself in his pride? Slain by a sword? Not quite. Anyone else? He ate grass. That's right. The judgment that came upon Nebuchadnezzar for his pride was that God removed a part of his thinking or a corrupted part of his thinking so that he did not have the ability, the cognitive abilities of a normal person and reduced him to the equivalent of a beast. And suddenly, just like Satan, Nebuchadnezzar was on his belly, as it were, or on all fours at least, eating dust, groveling in the dirt, gnawing on the grass for his sustenance. And this happened for a long time. And when was he raised back up again to the dignified status of the normal expression of being made in the image of God? When was he raised back up again? Only when he repented. Now, this is a picture of the subjugation and humiliation of evil. If man does not repent, he will grovel in the dust, he will lose his dignity, he will be made a spectacle, he will eat dirt, eat dust as it were, he will be under the foot of the Lord and ultimately of the people of God, even as Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And so this is the post-fall reality, the subjugation of evil. Who remembers what happened to Jezebel? What happened to Jezebel at the end of her life? Pushed out of the window and then what happened? Eaten by dogs. That's right. Jezebel, the once great feared queen, became dog food. Nebuchadnezzar, the once great feared world leader, became a cow, uh, so to speak. 
Herod. What happened to Herod? Eaten by worms. The once great worshipped prince, Herod, became worm food. All these examples are through Scripture. And you see how God reduces the self-exalted to nothing. Psalm 73 laments that this sometimes takes time. I almost doubt, he, the psalmist almost doubts his own faith when he sees that the wicked sometimes prosper for a season. Nevertheless, he understands in the end, when he goes to the sanctuary, that God places the wicked ones, those who uh, listen to the lies of Satan and seem to be exalted for a time, the Lord places them in slippery places, and the bigger they are, the harder they fall, and when they do, they prove this basic post-fall reality, that anyone who aligns themselves with Satan will be humiliated. We see this in our modern times as well. In the last century, think of the demise of a Hitler. He committed suicide surrounded by allied forces in this miserable, pitiful end, which in his dreams, whatever they were, of a superior race and world domination, died in humiliation. Mussolini, one of his cohorts earlier on in the war effort, as I recall, was hung upside down after he was killed by an insurrection and was spit upon in the streets. Osama bin Laden, the terrorist leader, once boasted influence and fearful and uh, in, in a fearful uh, uh, hand in uh, 9/11 and so forth, and uh, he was found in a hole and eventually he became fish food and so forth. These are modern examples of once great world leaders that, in the end, were reduced to uh, the situation, the scenario, and the judgment of Satan himself. This is a post-fall reality. A second post-fall reality pronounced upon the serpent. We go on to read verse 15. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The second post-fall reality pronounced upon the serpent is the fact that there will be a worldview war. There will always be until the Lord restores all things, so long as this eschaton, if you will, exists, there will always be intractable conflict between the people of God and the people of Satan. Those who are heirs of the philosophy of the devil, I can be as God, I can deny or marginalize or belittle or ignore or disregard the word of God. Anyone who does not take seriously the Lord's word and bow before the authority of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, everyone who does not whether it's by apathy or by arrogance or by rebellion or whatever it looks like on the outside, all of them are heirs of the philosophy of Satan, that I can disregard the word of God. And there will always and forever be until the Lord returns and restores all things, enmity, that means a hostility, a sort of war, a clash of ideas, especially between that camp of people And those who are the remnant, the called ones, the ones that are set apart, the chosen people, the privileged ones, the people of God, the children of God, the elect of God, these are all terms that the Bible uses to distinguish the seed of the woman, as it were, from the seed of the serpent. And there is a clash. I'm sure you felt this before. If you are interacting, say, with family members or friends who do not share your commitment to the authority of the Word of God and your exclusive, your exclusive belief and conviction that Jesus Christ alone holds the keys for salvation for man, sooner and later, or later in any serious conversation, you will end up clashing, butting heads, 
not getting anywhere, disagreeing. So it's at a certain point, you will sense that animosity, if you will, or that clash of ideas, that difference with the unbeliever as you speak to them. This is something that is a post-fall reality. There will be, by God's decree, enmity between the woman and her offspring, as it were, and the offspring of Satan. And this idea of offspring is a figure of speech or it's a picture to illustrate those who are in allegiance or covenant with their covenant head, as it were, or with, their, uh, or, or with the ideas that they ascribe to. In other words, in this picture, the seed of the woman is representative of those who are the heirs of the truth of God's word. And the offspring of Satan is a picture of those who align themselves who are heirs of the philosophy of the wicked one. This is a worldview war. There are two kinds of people with respect to humanities standing before God. There are believers and non-believers. These are irreconcilable worldviews. There is an absolutely fundamental conflict that will persist between the heirs of Satan's philosophy and those who hold to the Word of God. Now listen, attempts to bridge this divide are futile apart from conversion. In other words, how do I get substantial common ground with the unbeliever? The answer is, is when they repent and believe. That's when you can have true fellowship with the unbeliever. There is a point of contact in as much as you are both made in the image of God and you can communicate with them on that level. You can say, I was saved by grace alone. I was once a sinner like you. You have a place to begin in conversation. But so long as they don't believe that, you cannot have true unity, true communion, or true fellowship with the unbeliever. You can't, I can, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Is an unequal yoking something that God has ordained in the relationships that He prescribes for us as people? No. There is this absolute and fundamental conflict that persists between these two camps. Now, attempts to bridge this divide are futile apart from conversion. And the church, the confessing church of Jesus, when they try to bridge this divide of in any other way apart from the gospel... They always prove themselves to not be the church of Jesus Christ at all. And they always inevitably uh, capitulate or leave something that is essential of the Word and the Scriptures and the truth and the means and only way of salvation. They leave that aside and they begin to compromise and make common cause with the world in an area where the Bible says, Thou shalt not now, this pressure to conform to culture standards in order to have some kind of superficial unity, this is just another version of the original temptation of Satan. It's the idea that you can achieve something better, some standing, some a knowledge of good and evil independent of God's way. We must resist. We must remember that there's an enmity between the world the spirit of the Antichrist and the spirit of Christ between the world and the Lord and His holy word. This sharp distinction or antithesis remains by virtue of the respective nature of the believer and the unbeliever. When you confessed your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, there was a fundamental change of your nature. A new creative work took place in, the, in your soul, in the fabric of your very being. And you are now a different person. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come.
Jeremiah 13, 23, we discussed this last week. Can a leopard change his spots, the prophet asks. Then also can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? In other words, there is no change from those who are accustomed to do evil without a fundamental recreation. Any more than a leopard could decide, I'm not going to have spots today. Not going to happen. There will be this worldview war until, unless and until, the unbeliever is converted. Now the third basic post-fall reality is hope for the future. The second Adam. Verse 15 again. After pronouncing this enmity between the seed of the woman and her offspring and uh, the offspring of Satan as it were, the Lord proclaims, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the gospel in the Old Testament, first proclaimed by some accounts. We've mentioned this many times. This is a prophecy of hope in the fabric of this pronouncement of judgment of one who will come. Suddenly, the offspring, which is a plural reference, is changed to the singular. One of the woman's offspring holds out hope on the horizon inasmuch as he will crush the head of Satan. And the original language allows for this uh, range, of in, a range of interpretation, a range of meaning in the word for bruise or crush. So we could read it this way. Some translations say, he shall, uh, he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise or wound his heel. This, uh, or a second version that I referenced this morning in my study said it this way, you shall crush, or he shall crush your head, but you shall strike his heel. As we see here that this revelation of the second Adam to come militates against a nihilistic despair. In other words, we may be tempted in a post-Adam world to throw up our hands and think all is lost. Uh, oftentimes, this attitude is prevalent in the world. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There are some who delude themselves by saying they can achieve happiness by spending money, but there are also others who wallow in despair, saying it's hopeless. There is no hope. Therefore, we might as well just give ourselves over to our base impulses, do whatever we feel. There is no tomorrow promised or there is no hope on the horizon. Life is meaningless, but this is not the case. Though judgment is pronounced at this time because of, as a consequence of man's fall into sin, there is also purpose in God's judgments. And not only this, there is hope on the horizon. This speaks to us that there is a purpose in every single event of history. And the aim of this morning's message is to echo the Bible's proclamation of the glory of God, which is revealed in His prophetic word of judgment and of salvation. The Lord reveals Himself in His, in His word of judgment and in His message of salvation. Hope and redemption lie in seed form, ready to bloom in the fullness of time when Jesus will be revealed as the second Adam. And since we've spent some time here, and we'll spend more time there at a later point, we'll pause uh, and move to point number two, basic post-fall realities. Number one, we've covered that which was pronounced on the serpent, humiliating subjugation of the wicked, a worldview war, and the second Adam. The second of the post-fall realities is under the heading, a pronounce, the pronouncement upon the woman. And these fall into two categories, vocational suffering and relational dysfunction. Verse 16, 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Two basic post-fall realities established by the decree of God come in the pronouncement on the woman. First of all, vocational suffering. That which man is called to do, distinct or particular to the role of woman, and as we later see in the next example, particular to the role of man, will now be attended by suffering, by difficulty, by hardship. The Lord says to the woman, in effect, as consequence for your sin, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. This principle is also evident in Adam's case. The very calling and distinct privileges and purpose associated with woman now come at the cost of sorrow, suffering, and pain. But remember, this message to Eve has been preceded by this promise. There will come offspring from her womb, among them one who would bruise the head of the serpent, that is, crush the head of the serpent, though he would bruise his heel. This call of the woman to suffer and this pronouncement of judgment is attended, it's it's prefaced by a promise. In other words, for the woman of faith who reads these words, or for Eve herself, if the Holy Spirit was opening up her ears to the hope of salvation, she would know that, yes, her life would now be attended by pain, but would it be purposeless pain? No, it would be hopeful and attended with the promise. If she obeys the Lord, holds out hope for his salvation in spite of the suffering and the fallenness that she experiences on a day-by-day basis, there will come one, a deliverer, a Messiah, who will make things right again. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. This is a controversial text, text only because man wants to recreate society and ideals, values in his own image. People hate this text, but I'm telling you it holds out hope. It echoes what we have just read. And for those of you, particularly in this audience, who can relate to even as much as you are a woman, these words hold out great encouragement for you. 2 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not deceived... But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the message to women following the fall is she can endure. They can endure. Nevertheless, even in spite of the fall, nevertheless, she can endure for the hope of God's purposes through her calling quintessentially typified by the second Adam to come. Woman can endure in hope. She can suffer for Christ's name's sake when she remembers that God has purposes in this and those purposes that go along with her calling are typified, they're exemplified, especially in the example of Jesus Christ who is born of a virgin. The seed of the Messiah, which was preserved, that went all the way back to Eve. God has purposes in enduring in this time through the sorrow and suffering that still attend our way as the consequences of sin and look to the incarnation of Jesus Christ to gain strength and faith. Jesus Christ himself 
the book of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him endured hardship, even unto the shedding of his own blood under death on the cross. And so women and men alike can now look to Christ in that application, realizing that we haven't struggled so much that we have to give our lives and, uh, to pay for others or our own sins, but we look to Him. In other words, from Genesis 3 all the way through Hebrews and Timothy, the message is, look to Christ. There is purpose in suffering when we remember that Jesus suffered on our behalf. And the great privilege of, of, woman's, or, uh, of the woman was revealed in her future inasmuch as she would one day bear through her offspring, who would continue in, in this messianic lineage, she would one day have a son who would destroy uh, Satan once and for all through his death on Calvary. Second pronouncement on the woman, relational dysfunction or disorder. A post-fall reality is that the natural state of affairs in human relationships is one of friction and hardship and conflict and uh, animosity and antinomy. In verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. We studied this a bit in a men's group uh, at our last meeting and we noted that there's similar language, parallel language that is used in the next chapter. In other words, this parallel reference helps us understand the context of what this phrase means. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Notice Genesis 4, 7. This is a message, a proclamation to Cain. The Lord says to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Notice the phrase next that follows. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In other words, sin personified in this example has a desire that is an ungodly desire, an insatiable uh, proclivity to uh, want something that it should not, to take over, to master, to rule over, and so forth. And then conversely, there on the other on the flip side of the coin, he shall rule over you. There's this sense of man uh, exercising this domination, this rule over. So there's this this push, almost if you imagine a tug of war. In the game of tug of war, you can reach a state of equilibrium when both sides are pulling as hard as possible. And sometimes human relationships are like this. It's like, well, I better imply a little tension. I'm feeling like I'm getting pulled here. I, I get a little defensive and I want to make sure that I'm secure in myself. And then the other person in the relationship feels like, oh, I, I, you know, they're, they're kind of hedging their bets. I'm going to pull back or whatever. And so we try to reach a place of peace and equilibrium in human relationships, especially exemplified between husband and wife but through tension guarding ourselves and selfishly protecting ourselves. And this is, expresses itself in its natural state, post-fall reality, as a man desiring or as, as woman desiring for her husband's role and man asserting himself in a domineering sense over, his woman, over the woman. Now, let me uh, express it like this. I believe a good application of this is as follows. Left alone, society will tend toward one of these two perversions. Uh, rather than the natural harmony of God's complementary created order for marriage, uh, the one perversion will be the desire for the woman to be over her husband, a sort of female dominance, 
The second perversion, a, a sort of a male domination. So your desire shall be for your husband or he shall rule over you. This parallel phrasing in Genesis 4-7 lets us understand that a post-fall reality is left to its own natural devices. Society will tend toward one of these perversions. That is, rather than the natural harmony of God's complementary, beautiful, created order for marriage, mankind will tend to assert itself in female domination or in male domination, if you will. Do we see this today? Well, I submit to you, at best I can tell, as a cultural, as an armchair cultural observer, we live in an era of increasing female domination culturally, and the values manifesting themselves in the social order of our day Modern social values um, show themselves in a number of things, like radical feminism, the term toxic masculinity, the idea of being a victim of the patriarchy. There's this nasty woman movement where women uh, try to assert every aspect of who they are, and they want to be set free from any sense of propriety or the, uh, um, of uh, modesty. There's a hysterical political activism that takes place, shrill voices in the streets. There's a subjugation of a basic, healthy masculinity, and it's characterized as something else. Uh, disorderly homes are prevalent in our world today. Casual divorce is everywhere. Promiscuity is promoted and encouraged, but our society may not continue. There might, the pendulum may swing the other way. And there may be an overcorrection, and we may swing to the second perversion in our sin of a male-dominated culture. All of this is to say that though we live in a world that's plagued by these kinds of activities, recognize that this should be no surprise to us. The, what we see lived out before us in culture are basic post-fall realities. How can they be made right? When, again, when we look to Christ, Ephesians 5 tells us as much, does it not? How can the beautiful, complementary order of the husband-wife relationship be restored? It is restored in the picture of Jesus Christ, who gave Himself, instead of the relationship of tension and pulling and guarding and uh, your, yourself and hedging your bets and being defensive and trying to secure your own position as husband or wife or in any relationship, Christ did quite the opposite. He gave His life as a ransom for many. In His sacrificial self-giving, He who would be greatest in the kingdom of God follows His example by becoming a servant of all. And in Christ and in the gospel and in the gospel lived out, the beautiful, complementary, mutually life-giving, relational interaction of husband and wife, of servant and master, of individuals, friends and family is restored and beautifully so. And sanctification in part is the process of, the, of that beautiful relationship being rebuilt according to God's terms. Finally this morning, basic post-fall reality that we find pronounced Upon Adam, we see this picked up on, we see these picked up on in verses 17 through 19 in Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
uh, the other night. We were over at uh, Evan and Jenna's, and there's a few of us hanging out, and uh, Gene was there, and I was, uh, and he and I were doing this little basketball game, and we both started complaining about tennis elbow as an excuse for why we weren't doing as well in, in the basketball game. And for me, it's a little reminder when that twinge, you know, I, I find myself constantly doing this, rubbing out the tendons, you know, next to my elbow. Well, during the weekdays, I build, you know, I build homes and stuff. And over time, through, you know, handling tools, swinging the hammer, you know, handling the nail gun, uh, aches and pains tend to develop in my forearms. And my motor skills are attended by sharp, reali- by sharp post-fall realities in the form of pain. And that's just a personal example that falls right in line with the architecture of reality in a post-fall world as it's laid out. Curse shall be the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat it. If a man is going to produce as he ought to, and is worse than an infidel if he does not, if a man is to provide for his family, he should expect that this will not be an easy task. The bounty of Eden, which almost sprang forth of its own accord, and with, uh, you know, yes, man was called to cultivate, but it was a joyous task, and the bounty that it would yield, we can't even imagine now, because we are at the mercy of the elements. We had a hurricane recently, did we not, in Florida? I'm sure you guys all heard in the panhandle. Did you notice the destruction? What happens during a hurricane? Well, for all of our pride and all of our self-confidence and the technology and the things that we can build, Hysteria floods the airwaves and the media outlets when there's, a horizon, when there's a hurricane on the horizon and this category three, four, five is building. And suddenly people call to evacuate, whole square evacuation, everyone must leave, drive at least 100, 200 miles away, and fear strikes the heart of the coastal region in the wake of this oncoming hurricane. Man is scared of nature. Why? Because it's a post-fall reality. There was a time before sin entered this world where uh, nature was our uh, playground, as it were. It was, it was there for us to cultivate and would flourish, and we had dominion over it, and it would have been a glorious, incredible thing. Nothing, certainly nothing to fear. However, now even politics reveals this man's fundamental fear of nature. I submit that the whole global warming or climate change movement which uh, is sold to us on the fear that mankind's very existence is threatened by the changing uh, cl- uh, you know, aspects of climate plays into this. In other words, there would be no climate change movement if it were not for post-fall realities that we now are under the dominion in many ways of nature itself as a result of the consequences of our sin. We have something to fear. This is a dominion reversal in part. Man becomes the object rather than the agent of dominion. Man, uh, there's nature now takes authority over man in many ways, whereas pre-fall, man always and only would take authority over nature, a dominion reversal. This uh, is not only evident in, in a man's relationship with nature in as much as he tries to preserve his life and provide for himself, but it's also evident in physical death. Notice. For uh, by the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread. And, and then how does this pronouncement of judgment on man conclude? It says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Talk about a dominion reversal. In death, the dust takes dominion over man and conforms him to the image of dirt once again. In death, in physical death, dust takes dominion over man 
Talk about humiliation. Takes dominion over man and conforms him once again to the image of dirt. Is there any escape from this? Once again, absolutely there is. The Bible, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is victory over the dominion of dust. Uh, there's a great series that R.C. Sproul has put together. It's an overview of the message of the Bible. He labeled it, From Dust to Glory. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the scope of your experience will be from dust to dust and hell. But if you know Jesus Christ, if you are fundamentally reborn by, his sovereign, by the sovereign work of His Holy Spirit, if His resurrection will be your resurrection one day, if you will receive your glorified body one day, your story will be from dust to dust to glory. From dust, you could say, to glory. Praise His holy name. One final verse for you. New Testament affirmation of these truths. Let us close in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. These are some of my favorite verses. These closing verses remind us that there is only one way of deliverance from the ultimate and otherwise inevitable curse of sin. There is only one way of deliverance from the otherwise inescapable curse of sin. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, who do you uh, kids suppose uh, Hebrews is referring to there? Who shared in flesh and blood like us? Yeah. That's right, Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There it is. Victory over the devil, victory over death, victory in resurrection. It required a death to accomplish it. It required someone that was God and man. Only Jesus Christ fills those shoes. And because he did, because he shared in our humanity as the second Adam, because he defeated Satan on the cross, through his own death, destroyed death, we have victory over death. And our story is one from dust to glory. One final illustration application for you. I think last week, or something like that, the co-founder of Microsoft died. And I did a little web search this morning, and most of the stories I read were something like this. Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, dead at 65 from cancer. Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, dead at 65 from cancer. I remember when I was little, maybe five, six, seven, and uh, you know, you have those conversations, what do you want to be when you grow up with your friends? Maybe I was a little older, seven, eight, nine, probably. So I remember talking to my buddy, and he said, you know, I think the future is in computers. I'm getting pretty old for young people here. I'm like 41. So this was like 30 plus years ago, and we were talking about, you know, the future uh, jobs, I'll bet you that in the future, computers will... Uh, will, will, will be a very central part of our economy and, the, and so forth. Uh, Paul Allen made that same bet, and so he invested in computers. He applied his genius to the development of the personal computing device, along with uh, his more famous uh, Bill, uh, co, uh, uh, business partner, Bill Gates, and they developed this uh, multi-billion, maybe even trillion-dollar industry, personal computing Computers hold out so much hope, you guys, for mankind. Don't you realize? Be a little tongue-in-cheek and satirical here. But that's the way we think. 
Just like we, uh, us naive kids, thought that so much of our future hope and economic rested on computers and in a provisional, temporal, passing, you know, uh, a moth and, dust, moth and rust corrupting kind of way, that could be true. But it, does any ultimate hope hold out in computers? Let me tell you something. Paul Allen, when he died, was worth $26.1 billion. And he only lived to 65 in 2018. He could not defeat cancer. In the end, cancer took him back to dust. $2.6 million couldn't, billion, sorry, with a B, billion dollars couldn't get him past 65, six score and five years on this faded planet. Don't be deceived by the message of the world that money or technology holds out hope for the future. The only hope for man is always and only found in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, and the rest of the Holy Scripture, of course. Jesus Christ, who himself likewise partook of the same things, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We live in a world plagued with post-fall realities, but we also live by God's grace in the reality, if you know Jesus Christ, of hope for your soul. Look to Jesus and be saved. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of your Holy Scripture that identifies truly who we are in our sinfulness falling short. Lord, like a physician who is accurate, precise, and compassionate, you tell us exactly our condition. But like a well-skilled physician who holds the power to heal also in your hands, you prescribe absolute cure for the soul. You have supplied this in Jesus Christ, your Son. And through Him alone can we be reborn. And through Him alone can the curse be reversed. And the post-fall realities change from one of dust to dust to one of dust to glory. We confess this this morning. We place our hope in Him. We shore up by the power of the Spirit's use of this message our confidence in your Holy Scripture, and we ask that you would give us boldness to proclaim this message to others. And finally, Lord, I pray if there are any within the sound of this message who have not heard of Jesus Christ in such a way that it compels them to confess their sin and place faith in His work on Calvary, Pray that you would draw them by your Spirit unto salvation, repentance, and faith in the only way, truth, and life. Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord. In His name we pray, amen.